Welcome in everybody to a Tuesday edition of Texans All Access from the Hyundai Texans Radio Studio. I'm your host, John Harris, football analyst, sideline reporter, and I make mistakes. I'm saying that up front because last week I promised that we were going to have a show dedicated to my man Seth Payne. And this was last week in that everybody was in, in the Texas organization was on, that's our, our break up for us. We had one week. And so I was in LA. I got the show all ready to go. It was all set up, all right there, ready to, to happen. And I sent the wrong show. I had a Monday show and I had a Wednesday show and I sent the Monday show again. So I made a mistake, but I'm going to rectify that mistake tonight by having a little, where are they now to kick off the show with Seth Payne? We're not hearing him because he's on vacation. I don't know for how long, but he was on vacation this week. So he wasn't on. So I figured, you know what? Why not bring it back? Let's have a great time talking with Seth Payne. Drew Doherty has been doing some tremendous, where are they now? And so where are they now segments? And this was one of the best from beginning to end. Just fantastic. So let's hear from Seth Payne. Where are they now? We know where he is now, but how did he get to where he is now? It's a good discussion with my man, Drew Doherty. Let's go. It's always a treat and a pleasure to get to talk with Seth Payne. He is an original Texan. You hear him on the radios at Sports Radio 610 in the mornings with Sean Pendergast. I find myself laughing out loud at least once a show on the way into work. And he's been in this town for a long time. Went away, came back, went away, came back. Kind of ping-pongs all over the place. But Seth, first things first, how the hell are you? I'm, I'm good, man. You're right. I do ping-pong all over the place. Like Brand, Brandy and I have lived... We were counting it up the other day. And uh, I, I think... From the time we first got there and had like a temporary apartment in 2002, mm -hmm. I think it's nine different places in Houston. Which is really? Kinda, yeah, we like to take a sampling of uh, of everything. Uh, we yeah. just uh, we, now we you know once you have a kid, everything changes. But yet when I was done when I was done playing football, we moved, tried out a few different cities before we right. ended up back here. So um, yeah, ping pong is the right uh, is, is the right way. Yeah. And you're doing well right now, right? I mean, you're kind of doing the remote thing and I have a home. If yeah. that's what you're, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I never, I never thought you were living in a tent or in a cardboard box or anything. I, or... Yeah. Now I spend, um, I, I go back and forth between like my wife's hometown, which is close to my hometown mm -hmm. and Houston quite a, like quite a lot yeah. in, in a way that I, that I really, really like. Like I like being able to, um kind of get variety and change things up and there's times where i can I, I i'm kind of by myself for 72 straight hours or i can just be a workaholic <laughs> you know or a sleepaholic like whichever one or a psychopath yeah. i mean if you yeah, want to do yeah. something like that that's, you know yeah, that's, kind of the yeah, shining uh, I, <laughs> yeah i can manage like three different personalities completely if i <laughs> uh, if i manage my time right i think that's a sign of brilliance right uh, yeah one of those things yeah. All right, well, let's go back way back when you're growing up. Uh, you had a bit of a rural upbringing. Am I right? As far as that goes, not yeah. upbringing, but you had there's an aspect of it. I mean, what we uh, well, yeah, my my father was a farmer mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, I when I was born, we were working on a dairy farm. My father was part of his family's dairy farm with my grandpa and my uncle. So from the time I was from, you know, zero to five, 
we lived on farms and then my parents got divorced but my dad was still a farmer mm -hmm. so up through when i was a teenager before my dad finally got out of farming altogether um but then even after that i worked on my grandpa's farm i worked on my uncle's farm so it was a it was a big part of my life growing up and like i you know a big part of my identity was that i i came from a family of dairy farmers and it was a i think there's a lot of it's kind of like unique type of pride in that because part sure. of the pride is wrapped up in that uh that it's, it's a it's a rough life like it, it's a it's a life that's uh very very demanding in terms of just physical work sleep deprivation uh financial uncertainty even when things are going really really well the next drought or uh they, you that's know, gotta be the worst part or right anything. yeah that's, it's the that, that has to be the worst part right yeah that's it it, it totally is like anything in life when there's uncertainty yeah. and you don't have any control over it. it. So anything that really depends on the weather that that's a huge source of stress. So I think even my grandpa, you know, who was, uh, I, I think successful in life. I just, I, I always growing up, I always felt like everything was always on the brink of disaster. And it wasn't until I got older. I was like, Oh no, that's just the way my family handles it. <laughs> that's they do well because they're constantly preparing for disaster. How long did that take you to figure that out though? I mean, that's, I that, like, it seemed you say it like it's, Oh, that's like, but that's gotta be a, a process that happens in, over years. Right. Oh yeah. I'd say I, I, not that long by the time I was maybe 43 or 44, <laughs> that was, uh, that I realized that maybe, uh, Oh, you don't always have to worry about everything all the time. Yeah. But, uh, it's okay to, it's okay to, it's okay to enjoy things a little bit every now and then, you know, in a good sense though, I'm guessing that gave you some pretty good perspective on things. So when, you know, times got tough in high school or in college yeah. or in the NFL, and you did go through tough times. I'm not saying they weren't tough, but that kind of helped you deal with them a little bit better. Perhaps. Am I, am I reading oh, too far into that? No, a hundred percent. I, you know, I really, it's a shame that kids nowadays, and you know, and I would include that with kids my age growing up, you know, it wasn't like we're an agrarian society when I was growing up. So I, I was in the minority of kids that like worked really hard physical jobs from a young age. Um, but it does, it does, it teaches you character. Uh, and it also, it teaches you to have perspective on things. Um, and there, there are very few jobs that are as hard as like just really hard physical labor out mm -hmm. in the heat. And, you know, you can have miserable parts of various other jobs, but um, like once you've been through that and once you've worked really long hours and, and I think really probably thing that helped I, I, just thinking back on my brother and me in our athletic careers, the thing that probably helped the most was that from a young age, you're working alongside grown men and trying to keep up with them. Yeah. So the standard is always like, there's always a really high bar that you can't reach or attain. And yeah. you know, you're the person that's slowing everybody down. So you just constantly trying not to be the slowest guy out there. And, and that kind of flows over into the way you treat at sports practice and everything else. So yeah, that was, um, that was, it was a huge, huge part of allowing me to have some athletic success. I think. Talking with original Texan Seth Payne played on the defensive line, mainly at nose tackle for the Houston Texans when the franchise began. Seth, so you've got that rural background, that that farming background, but have you all you've always been a pretty voracious reader, right? You've been you've always been into you've always had your nose in a book for the most yeah, part, right? Yeah, yeah. I uh I yeah, from a young age, I think I just I I took to reading. Fiction, nonfiction, everything, yeah, one in every, particular. Yeah. Yeah, really everything. I kind of I'll, I'll burn out on nonfiction and then realize like, oh, OK, I need to uh, I need to get out of that. And then I'll then I'll go on a 
fiction bender and then realize that I'm neglecting every other aspect of my life. So, um, and then I'll, then I'll just ping pong back to, to nonfiction. And, uh, but lately it's been hard. What are you reading? I, yeah. What are you reading right okay, now? Okay. All right. I'm, I'm quote unquote reading Shogun by James Clavell. Oh yeah. That's a, I remember that being on my parents, like, book stand or book bookcase when I was yeah that's an oldie right well okay so it was written in the 70s yeah okay by this British World War II veteran who I believe had been in Japanese POW camps um when he was in war in World War II so but when he got out he started learning about the Japanese and you know learned a great respect for their culture but it's also it's uh you can tell there's certain parts about it where you can tell all right this was written in the 1970s um, by like, OK, by uh, this English dude who's giving his version of ancient right. Japanese culture. And it's hard not to read it without thinking like, all right, I got to I got to fact check a lot of this when I'm <laughs> done with it. Because, man, the, the part especially where, uh, you know, he's painting this culture where, oh, yeah, the women are completely and totally subservient to the men. <laughs> and they just love it. You know, they love it. They don't really uh, they don't even have a problem with it. I'm like, all right. All right uh, <laughs> there's a I understand the differences of culture and everything. But anyway. Um, but so what I was going to tell you is that I, I the, pro- the mistake I made was I started listening to books on Audible. And uh, I, I'm kind of I'm kind of ruined for I, I listen to a lot of books these days. Do you really? So I'm okay. listening to this one. This one's like 50 hours long. I um, still I, I'm still old school. Like, yeah, I, I curl up, but, you know, in bed before, you know, I go to sleep. I, I'm laying on one side, reading a book, with the actual hardcover, never done a Kindle, never done any of that stuff. I'm yeah, I still go to the library when they have, um, you know, the used book sales. Uh-huh. And get the 50 cent paper. I'm a dork. So no, anyways. no, no. But that's good. Cause there is, especially when you're trying to remember something from earlier in the book, or you just want to do a good old fashioned dog ear on it. Yep. You, it's you, you lose something when you don't have that connection to it, or even just like the geo, the geographic location for yeah. remembering where a spot was in a book. Cause I, I mean, it's almost in the same way. Like I can walk on the field at NRG stadium and remember, specific things based on where I am on the field. Oh, I bet. Like, I'll just, I'll step in a spot and it just kind of brings back. And it's weird. Um, it's not anything that like, I'm trying to do or anything, but it's really cool. Just even though, you know, I've been all over that field in various moments and everything, it's still, you still got a real strong connection just to that one specific spot. I bet you really like the middle of that South end zone the most, don't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wrapping up um, Quincy Carter. Yeah, except, you know, the problem with that is uh, I barely remember it. That, that was one of those. Uh, so when, when I, I got the safety, Gary Walker was like three millimeters behind me. So I got I ended up getting credit for that sack. Gary Walker was very, very close to sharing the sack with me. And he was um, the one flexing. Yes, that the cameras yeah, yeah. were drawn to afterwards. Yes, yeah. yeah. Well, Which, but, but, and to set things up, to set things up. Most people know this that are listening to this, but yeah. to set things up, it's late in the game. Texans are on top. It was 1710, I believe. But. Cowboys had a chance. There's still some time. You're they're backed up, and you get through. You sack Quincy Carter for a safety. Like you say, Gary Walker is right next to you. He's up flexing. The place is, I mean, is the loudest you'd ever heard NRG Stadium. Yeah. I mean, oh, it just yeah, goes bananas. Yeah. And you guys, yeah. it seals the win, essentially. They're, they're not going to come back after that. Just put you it, up 1910. It's it's one of the coolest things that's ever happened to me in my entire life like in any realm sports or otherwise mm-hmm. um just because of 
how unique the situation was with the Texans coming back, uh, well, football coming back sure. to Houston, the NFL coming back to Houston, like how pent up the energy of the fans was. And then just that moment. Yeah. But I usually like, I'm not a guy that kind of goes unconscious during plays a lot. A lot of times, you know, especially the really great athletes will, will struggle to even remember how a play went because they're just in that unconscious mode where they're right. just going. That was one of those moments where I think just because of fatigue, because of everything, I remember, I remember going right up to the snap, but then everything's a blur after that. And I remember running off, running off to the sideline and everybody's celebrating and jumping up and down and everything. And, and I remember Corey Sears grabbing me and saying something. I was like, yeah, what happened? <laughs> He's like, you, <laughs> you did that. I was like, what? He's like, you did that. That was you. <laughs> like, oh, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> so I kind of, it's funny. I get to watch that as a spectator. And uh, a lot of times what will happen is you might, you might remember a play, but in your mind, everything happens so slowly that when you watch it on film later, especially when you watch on the TV copy, you're like, wow, that actually all happened. That thing that felt like it took 29 seconds happened in like a quarter second. And I get that effect just watching that play, seeing how quickly it unfolded and everything. Um, it's, it's just kind of fun to watch as a spectator. So, well, it was fun to watch uh, in an attic apartment in Dallas in 2002 because it was me and a bunch of my college friends and they were all mainly i mean they're from some of them for out of from, were from out of town but they're mainly cowboys fans so um yeah, i was you, kind of uh, i was so kind of an were, a-hole huh? yeah <laughs> i was going bananas so yeah, yeah like that was before social media of any sort oh yeah too. so i think nobody, was, nobody had camera phones you yeah, know, oh, yeah, yeah no risk no of embarrassment phone. you know yeah you speak it at will yeah it was that was a fun fun night for sure we'll get okay we'll get into more football later but football you're obviously a smart guy it comes time because you're a wrecking shop in college. You were, you were like the, the bully in, or excuse me, in high school. Right. Yeah, it comes time I, to, I comes, was a, you know, I was, I was bully a, on the football field, bully on the football field. Well, you no, were, no, you were no, a no. nice guy. You weren't well, messing no, with I, people. I think uh, I would say high school and college was similar because I was a really late bloomer physically. Like uh -huh. I, I grew a bunch of inches. Like I grew two inches when I got to college, um, but I didn't really have my growth spurt until my junior year in high school. There's a, it was a poor setup to the question. The question was, okay. you did really well on the field in high school, obviously in the classroom, but what made you choose Cornell? And what else, what were the other choices available to you, Seth Payne? Okay, so, because okay, I was a late bloomer, I didn't really have a whole lot of buzz about me going into okay. my senior year. You know, I'd grown a few inches my junior year. Um, like, like, during the football season, my junior year, I was still growing. So I was just <laughs> gangly and awkward, you know. And I was, I was starting, and I was okay. But I ended up deciding because we had a, a state champion wrestler at heavyweight uh, that year when I was a junior and, and this kid would have been a senior. I said, well, look, I've been a, a varsity wrestler and I wrestled like 132 the year before. Um, Holy cow, really? I, I, but I had grown and I was at the time, the weight classes were either 177 or 215. Um, and there was nothing in between. Uh, so it was pretty much just like, okay, I either like wrestled JV all of a sudden, or I just don't wrestle at all. Yeah. Um, so I just, I quit wrestling and, and decided to just focus on football and training and everything and doing that. And I remember the wrestling coach was like, well, Seth, what are you doing? It's not like you're going to play in the NFL or anything. Like, don't, <laughs> don't give up this opportunity. 
to be an awesome JV wrestler for a year. Um, so you find him when you go home and just spike a football in his face every time you see him. <laughs> no, we laugh about it. He was, he was, you know what? Honestly, he was making the right argument. It's not like I couldn't right. have also kept, you know, gaining weight and everything. It was just, I felt like it was what I wanted to do. And I actually really committed to it. I had a friend that I had a friend, Brian Kokoda, who was way, was way more mature than me. He was a year older than me and, and he was going off to play in college. So we just worked out every day for like two and a half hours after school every day. And I just, I kept growing vertically, but then I just, I got a lot bigger and I came back by the time I was uh, a senior, just like, like a, like a little man child, you know? Right. Um, so I played really well my senior year in high school, but my, my coach was not long for the coaching profession and he was kind of out to lunch. So after he got fired at the end of a high school season, you know, I'd gotten like all county or all whatever that was all league, but nothing, nothing really, not a whole lot of accolades. Um, this, this other kid, Sean O'Day and I went into his office while we were working out one day, this is the end of the football season. End so, of junior or senior year, senior year. End, end of senior, of my okay, senior okay, year. Okay. And we saw a bunch of these questionnaires from colleges laying on the table, like unopened, the envelopes were unopened. So Sean, Sean and I were like, are you serious? Yeah, 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 yeah. Nothing ever. Nobody had ever shown anything to anybody. So Sean and I were like, well, what do you think? And they're like, "Ah, I don't know. It's not, it's, it's not, we just won't sign any names to it. We'll just fill them out. So we filled out these questionnaires to different colleges that we were interested in. And, you know, they're all pretty much local and regional. Like my area, of the country didn't get recruited a whole lot at all. Mm-hmm. So, and a bunch of people in my family had gone to Cornell and I had, I had, I had really good grades, but then I had a rough stretch in high school that knocked me down out of like the top, uh, the top five in my class or what have you. Right. So, but I was like, you know, I, I mean, I'll just fill one out for Cornell and um, <laughs> did like the, uh, the appraisal of the player and everything. Didn't sign it, but just sent it off to Cornell. And, um, with and and then like two weeks later i get a call while i'm in class and it was a coach from cornell was there kind of doing a tour of my area and he wanted to watch some film so he calls me down we sit and i i could tell like i don't think he was thinking much of me but then when i walked in the door he could tell that i was a big kid and uh you know yeah. he asked who i'd been looking at it was a bunch of local division three schools so he's like, oh, I'm coach is uh, coach Stefano. He's still a, a good friend of mine to this day. And he's like, oh, coach, let's, uh, he's an Italian guy. Uh, let's take a look at, uh, let's see what you got. So I, I put a tape in from one of my games and I could kind of tell, like, I didn't have a whole lot of confidence about it, but I could kind of tell about like five, six plays into it. And it was, we were watching this game of me versus East Rochester. And, and I remember this game. It was, it was like, I was like a, it was like I was a barbarian sacking a village of peasants. I was just like picking people up and throwing them around, and, like tossing that offensive tackle into the running back and then a bunch of throw pillows, back. basically. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and I remember coach just being like, mm, OK, OK, so you're uh, so who's talking to you? Did you say? And uh, I'm like, I don't know. It's just University of Rochester, Hobart. Like, oh, OK, um, well, hey, listen, um. What are you What are you doing next weekend? Do you uh, You want to come take a visit? And, and it, it, it kind of I was like, yeah, yeah, no, no problem, Coach. I was just like <laughs> a just a babe in the woods, not really knowing much about anything. Um, so within like a, a couple weeks, I kind of they put started putting on a full court press, and uh, my my test scores were good enough to get in and everything. It helped too. It, like Cornell is the only Ivy League school that also has an ag school, 
and oh, it, yeah. it's kind of so it helped me get in there that I had an agricultural background because there's fewer and fewer kids that do. So I was able to like between football and ag school, they were able to overlook the one semester that I had um, dropped out of school and driven to Florida and, uh, and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and contemplated uh, working on a fishing boat for a few weeks. I want to get into that, but we don't have time for that. Maybe, maybe the next time you come on this one, but uh, you go to Cornell things go well there but how eye-opening an experience was that for you just socially and academically and everything and and being around um the you know the high high achievers that you were around then yeah it it really um i think when you when you can go to a school that's got uh you know really tough admission standards like that i i don't know how much better the actual education itself is i mean there's really good professors everywhere you know mm. and there's good the the knowledge is <laughs> the knowledge is the knowledge of the books are the books um the the part that is really cool is i think you do kind of get exposed to these different types of kids that come from really different backgrounds so a you learn just how a lot of your, you know, preconceptions or prejudices or beliefs about kids from this area or that area or, or whatever you have from growing up um, are really off. Uh, but then B too, I, I think you just kind of get to learn to respect different types of achievement and different mm-hmm. types of, um, I guess, uh, different types of intelligence. Because uh, you got kids that are math geniuses um and you've got kids that are are are, you know artistic geniuses uh and like so much you're superior in such a vast way that yeah you learn a certain humility i think or at least hopefully that's the way it it should work out like and i I can just remember kind of being baffled by like how smart a person could be like various because i tried to i tried to get out and and partake of a lot of different things and, you know, meet people that I wouldn't have ordinarily met. So that part of it was really like eye-opening to the broader world. So what were you, was it like it in the, the scene in pitch perfect on the first day when they're all going around and filling out like for the extracurriculars and you're, did you join a bunch of extracurriculars in addition to football? Where <laughs> I mean, was it? <laughs> oh yeah. For a little while, but then it turned in. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm painting, a, I'm painting a more uh, impressive picture of myself than it actually was. Oh, I'm, not saying I, that. I'm just saying what I, what I mean to say is that yeah, I ended up going to a lot of different bars where I met a lot of different people and I they thought, were you all... know, you joined the origami club. And you... <laughs> um, no, but there was, well, there were, yeah, like there were a couple different like uh, charitable organizations that I was lucky enough to be a part of that were also kind of like social club type of things. Gotcha. Um, so you kind of mix both of those worlds. And that's where I like, honestly, the biggest culture shock for me there at that type of school was the, um, I was just around, I was around like really rich people for the first time in my life. Hmm. Um, Cause I'd been around really poor people, a good chunk. Cause I was, you know, we were like, part of it was growing up like in like, barefoot poor in North Carolina for like a certain stretch of time we were and then and then I'd been around you know like uh, like people in the suburbs and I've been around people in the country and everything but like that whole environment of uh, like prep school well ultra elite rich kids and I think that's like of all the prejudices that I might have had as a young man I was really like I had like a chip on my shoulder about rich kids and it was really, it was, it was kind of cool to see that. Yeah. Sometimes those stereotypes are true. Um, and sometimes 
just like in any other walk of life, like the, the people can be bastards. Um, but then a lot of times, like a lot of my preconceptions or misconceptions about successful people um, or wealthy people or anything like that, were just way out of line. Uh, and, and kind of that, that there's uh, like, it was, it was one of those ways of like really learning to judge people um, with by while stripping away all their appearances. So I think a lot of times we think of like, you know, not judging, yeah, like not judging somebody that's um, not judging that somebody that's poor or judging somebody by a lack of something. Right. Um, but I was really like, I was a complete hypocrite when it came to like judging people for like otherwise beneficial things. I was really like, I was really uh, kind of a jerk about it. Yeah, I've heard your uh, I've heard your tales, you know, in, in the car talking about uh, what was it? People that vacation or people that didn't have to work. And you're like, <laughs> I guess growing up, you'd heard. Oh, yeah, know. yeah. No, I, <laughs> I just felt like, yeah. I, I thought teachers were rich. I thought that oh. there was some, it was that if you had a family, if you were a kid and both your parents were teachers and you owned an RV, I thought you were loaded uh, because <laughs> you got to like, you went on vacation in the summer and everything. So yeah, it's just it's all, a good life right there. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. That was yeah. Uh, Tyler Tilling. I thought like, I was like, Oh man, Tyler is rich. That kid is loaded. What's <laughs> <laughs> what do his parents do? They're both teachers. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I've known a lot of teachers in my day. None of them are rich, at least not for the teaching part, unless they were doing something nefarious. But that wasn't me or my parents or all my parents' friends or a lot of my friends. That just wasn't the case. All right, let's hear a little bit more from our guy Seth Payne coming up next right here on Texans All Access. Texans All Access. Texans All Access. Texans All Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to a Tuesday edition of Texans All Access from the Hyundai Texans Radio Studio. I'm your host, John Harris. And I had promised this show last week, this Where Are They Now with Seth Payne, but I messed it up. But there's always time to rectify a mistake, and that's what I'm doing tonight. Drew Doherty had a chance to catch up with Seth Payne. It was awesome. And I debated whether, like, I play a segment? No, man, this is really good. I mean, all the way through. So I figured, you know what, let's make a show out of it. Here's part two. Drew Doherty, Seth Payne, talking Where Are They Now right here in Texas All Access. Let's go! All right, so you you wind up getting drafted by the Jacksonville Jaguars, and kind of the overriding thing over the last few years that I've gathered from you is you have a deep respect for Tom Coughlin, despite some of the kind of old school, maybe questionably dumb stuff that he did as a coach, <laughs> yeah. but you still respect because he was a winner. He did wind up winning, and he I mean he was a, a really impressive coach. It, am I off base in that, or is no, that pretty no. accurate? I think that I think in a lot of ways players who have played for Tom Coughlin as they get older, kind of respect him the same way you might respect uh, a, a disciplinarian father where yeah. when you're growing up, you might just, you know, you might feel like you hate him because he's so tough on you. And then you get older and you start to realize like, okay, there's a different side to him and you understand why he does the things he does and why he is so tough on you. And, and then part of it too is, that Coughlin and I grew up in the same area of the country in, oh, really? you know, an upstate Western New York where the uh, best way I can describe it is it's like it, upstate, like the Finger Lakes region in Western New York is more like West Texas than it is New York city. Like it's very, see, I've lived it, in West Texas too. I lived in yeah. Lubbock. So that's and not, not topography wise. No, I know. Yeah. I know what you just, mean. You know, Socially, it's like, yeah. yeah. It's like, it's a lot more rural in a lot of respects. Um, and, it's uh, it, but 
but it's also cloudy all the damn time. And because yeah. of it, I think people kind of get kind of cynical about stuff <laughs> and, and sometimes are like, just, just kind of grumpy, but not in the, not in an aggressive way. Like you might find in New York city or Boston or something. Uh, they're just kind of grumpy about stuff and they're going to like, they're going to find uh, the negative side of, of anything, which ultimately, uh, you know, it resolves itself and everything, but they're always just kind of looking for the downside of something. And it serves Coughlin well, because as a coach, it's uh, like, that's what coaches do is like, they're just constantly looking for like, okay, yeah, well we won, but uh, this part right. really sucked. So <laughs> you're never going to ignore in victory what you would address in defeat, and, which is something that Jeff Van Gundy, who was also from my region of the country said. So uh, good people, of, by the way, love Jeff yeah, Van Gundy. A lot of kids from uh, a lot of kids listening might not realize that when Jeff Van Gundy was a coach, he was a grumpy SOB, just like Tom Coughlin. <laughs> like this whole like fun, loving, rosy side of Je uh, Jeff Van Gundy that didn't emerge until he got into broadcasting after coaching. That's been the coolest thing because I've I've run into him a few times. He's a Texans fan, and yeah. he's he knows he knows the franchise. I mean, he's he's got a zillion great stories and. I mean, yeah, I've had a lot of fun talking with him. I did not know that about Coughlin and him being near you. Is it how close to like Cooperstown and Utica were That's you? That's like a ways away. That's okay. a few hours over. That's like over central part of Albany than we are. Yeah, gotcha. I think Utica. Yeah, it's on the way to. I used to take the. So like Jeff Van Gundy's from. I think he's from Brockport originally. Gotcha. Which is a, like a little suburb of Rochester. Tom Coughlin's from Waterloo, which is way out but a suburb kind of Rochester, but like an hour away. And like, I'm smack dab between those two. All right. For those of you listening, this is Seth Payne. We're talking with original Texan and it's kind of one of those things. This is not the most comprehensive conversation with Seth. It's kind of like we're skipping a stone. It's hitting the water a few different spots and we're picking up little points in Seth's life. Maybe we can do this again. I'd hope I'd, I'd like to do this again, but Oh, you, you go, go as long as you want right now, man. I'm not, you, well, you June. go to the Texans. I mean, you're in that expansion draft. And that first year, first few years, rough. But geez, you guys had some damn good defenses that you were a part of. I mean, do you look back at those years and think, sheesh, we really kind of, things got squandered, you know, like that, th those defenses we were on kind of got squandered because of what was going on, just the, the growth that needed to happen offensively? Yeah, it was, that was, it's a shame because sometimes when I look back over the, um, like the stats from 2002, where like if you look at DVOA or some of those things, we were respectable, but and I like I say this without like trying to criticize the offense. Or right. And I, the, that wasn't the, my meaning either. Yeah. But I was oh, just no, more no. about how good you guys were. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I guess because the offense had six rookies starting on it. Yeah. Like it was just it was a bad offense, but it was through no fault of the guys on there. Like right. Chester Pitts was going to end up being a really good offensive tackle. But he was one of six rookies <laughs> starting on that team at the time. Right. Um, and, and including the quarterback, which is almost like having three rookies starting. Sure. So that part of it kind of you know skewed the defensive stats because we were out on the field so much but yeah those those guys that I got to play on on that defense um it was really it was really some of my favorite times playing football because because a there were a lot of guys that were just super professional um that just played their butts off that knew a whole lot about football um but then b you take those guys and there was a lot of pressure on us to just be like, we had to be the reason we we're going to win football games. Yeah. It was, if we were going to win, it was going to be 10 to seven or 13 to three or something. Like it was uh it was going to be a close, hard fought game or 
like in the case of that Steelers game that year, we were going to have create four turnovers and score twice on defense. So um, like, I, like, I think there were various times when I was playing nose tackle in a three, four, and that was the mm-hmm. first time I'd ever played that position. And the thing is like a lot of times people will, they'll heap so much praise on a nose tackle for being underappreciated that I feel like sometimes you end up being overappreciated. They'll say like, yeah, there's so many articles written about like, well, this guy's underappreciated. <laughs> but like how many, I've got like eight different headlines of me being underappreciated. I kind of feel like because, because the, the theory is like, oh, okay, well the nose tackles taking up a lot of space and helping out the linebackers behind him. The, the other side of that equation in a three, four defense is that the linebackers behind you are taking a lot of uh, a heat off of you as a nose tackle. Right. So like when, when I had over those first couple of years, um, Jay Foreman and Jamie Sharper uh, really at times, two guys who gobbled up tackles. Yeah. hundred yeah. tackle guys. Like back then. they were old school inside linebackers yeah. that just came up and filled the hole and weren't afraid to take on guards. Like they were very few linebackers take on guards these days like really take on guards and those two guys like did it that old school way so I kind of just I I just felt really lucky to play with guys like that who were Mm -hmm. just super professional about their business in a way that um that that, that some guys frankly aren't and and, like I don't want to start going through the list because I'll forget people but right right uh, right there are a lot of guys like that and then you know and Gary Walker and I got to end up playing together as teammates for a total of Gosh, I think seven years. That's um, rare. That's yeah. rare, especially two teams like that. I mean, that's yeah. rare. Yeah, and and he's another guy that like I always noticed the difference between if if Gary was in the game, uh, it wasn't as physically painful because he soaked up a lot of double teams. <laughs> Gary left, it was like, oh well, let's pick on somebody else now, and it was like <laughs> football was a way more painful game. Okay, properly appreciated, underappreciated, overappreciated, whatever the the level of appreciation. I have noticed, I've been with the Texans since 09. I have noticed that you can't say, you know what, to the nose tackle in the locker room. That because like nobody's going to, like, the, everyone has respect for the nose tackle. Oh, oh. Whether okay. it was you, whether it was Sean Cody, whether it yeah. was, or, uh, not Roman, I was going to say uh, DJ Reader, Pickett. I mean, everybody loves respects and just gives it up for the nose tackle. Yeah. That part you, of and it you guys is- seem to have like a kinship too over <laughs> well, the years. It's another cool part of it. Um, I'm glad you said it actually that way too. Cause well, for, for, for one, yeah, Gary, Gary never stopped messing with me. So there's that, <laughs> but um, I think that the thing about playing nose tackle, that's really cool. Cause again, I hadn't really, I'd never played that position in a three, four before. Is it like everybody sees it? Like everybody sees the abuse, the physical abuse that you're taking. And right. a lot of times guys don't realize it um, until they're watching and you're in a team meeting and, you know, usually the de- defensive coordinators are really good about pointing it out when somebody makes a tackle for a loss, but the nose tackle is like upside down, soaking up three, three offensive linemen. Uh, it's like, they'll point it out. And that was always actually one of my other favorite things playing in a three, four for the Texans was when one of the defensive backs would say something to me, like after a, like it, it, if I made a play after getting combo blocked or something like that, when the defensive backs compliment you and you could tell that they noticed it like, while they were watching, 
Um, sometimes you can really hear it across from the hall when they get super excited about something <laughs> and then somebody will duck their head in and, uh, and tell, like Dante Robinson will duck their head in, like in the middle of our meeting. We're like, damn Gary, <laughs> like we just, <laughs> we just saw you do whatever. And, um, that part's really cool. So when you, when you can earn the respect of the defensive backs who have, you know, got their whole host of issues to worry about that, that part's really cool. All right. We got one final segment of this Seth Payne, where are they now retrospective? And, of course, Seth has retired, and he returned to Houston. And I feel like I was a little bit of a part of that. Because in 2011, while Seth was still living in New York, he would join me and a, and a friend of mine on the air every single Monday to talk about the Texans. And I always loved it. And then it was about six to eight months later, Seth Payne got into Houston radio and created a legend for himself. What was that like? We'll do that next right here at Texans All Access. Texans All Access. Welcome back to this final segment of a Tuesday edition of Texans All Access. I'm your host, John Harris, football analyst and silent reporter for your Houston Texans and an Ivy League graduate. Like our subject this evening, Seth Payne. We did a little Where Are They Now? And by we, I mean Drew Doherty. You did a great job talking with Seth about many things. But now it's retirement time. And, well, for those of you that listen to 610, you know exactly where Seth is. But Drew wanted to talk about that a little bit further. So here we go. Seth Payne in retirement. What was it like retirement? I mean, I know everyone has, not everyone, but many have their struggles when the game's over. You've obviously flourished, you know, but you did a lot of stuff before or in between leaving the Texans and getting on the radio. What was that that period like? Because I remember you telling me you ran some marathons, and I was like, what? Yeah, yeah, I did. I mean, that That was stupid. What was life like for a little bit? I was like, you know. It was, um, you know what, this is what I discovered, and this is what I tell guys, is that I actually had a pretty good plan for what I wanted to do, but about a year and a half into it, I realized that, I didn't like any of the things I was planning on doing when I was playing. So or with the, the things that I had planned out in terms of a couple of the businesses I was involved in and what mm-hmm. I was doing on a daily basis um, just wasn't really actually what I enjoyed doing. So I always try to tell guys, you know, to, to be, to have a plan and have options, but to just to anticipate and expect that there might be some malaise as you really try to figure out exactly what you want to do. Yeah. Um, Cause you never really know you can do stuff in the off season and try it out, but you never really know until you're, until you're in it. And um, I think for me, probably like without going into too much detail, I think one thing that happened was when, when you're a player, sometimes, you know, you, you know, it's drilled into your head to play for, so many things other than money that you Mm -hmm. should like you want to care about things because the money's already there like as soon as you're in the nfl you're making more money than probably anybody in your family has ever made before so the money's already there so if you're using money as a motivator it fades really really quickly right um so you got to find other things that motivate you and i think that the the one big revelation i kind of had when i was done playing was that I was doing a lot of things that I thought were good things um, that I thought were, you know, productive and good for society after I was done. But then also, I just like, I, I like earning a paycheck. Like I started, like, I, I was lucky. I grew up on a farm where my, my family paid me from a very early age to work. (laughs) And I kind of like, just from a young age, I was earning a, I was earning a paycheck or I was at least getting money after I would help pay and everything. Cause, um, and the part of it for me was just like, I just got to get back to just earning a paycheck and like, and working 
Um, like not a real job. I don't feel like I have a real job now. Um, but there's a, like, there's a whole lot of dignity and honor and just going out and, and earning a paycheck. Um, and that sometimes I think we're, we're bombarded with so many, with so many Ted talks and motivational slogans and everything else these days that I think people, people get to the point where they almost feel guilty or that they feel like it's not a worthy thing just to be an earner and a provider, you know, like, but at the end of the day, that's really like, that's, that's the same as a few hundred years ago when you were going out and you had to hunt and gather, um, you know, like that's, that's your worth as a human being is like keeping you and your other human beings alive. So that's, uh, so I just, I missed, I missed like working a real job. Um, so I, I try, I had to go about finding a job that wasn't a real job, but tell myself it's a real job. And I landed on sports talk radio. Boy, Seth said a lot in this hour show, and that might have been the best thing he said. Yes, Sports Talk Radio, where we all think we work, but all we do is flap our gums. A big, big, big thanks to Seth Payne, uh, one of the best guys you're going to know, one of the original Texans, and so glad that he sat down with my friend Drew Doherty to talk about all of that this evening. A big thanks to all of you involved in this show, to Drew, to Seth, of course, and to all of you for listening. Thank you so much. We'll see you tomorrow, and as always, go Texans.